0: quire all those questions you've always wanted to know Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton, and I'm here to answer all of your questions. And just so you guys know, I, I'm sure you're aware of this, but I feel like I just need to say it. There are no weird questions, over-the-top questions, or inappropriate questions when it comes to this podcast. I want you all to feel free to ask anything and everything that comes to mind, especially when it you know, involves our mental health. It's important. And without further ado, let's jump into question number one. This question says, hi, Katie. Can you talk about addiction as a coping skill for trauma, please? I was abused as a kid and teenager and have struggled with addiction since I was 14 years old. Alcohol, drugs, gambling, social media, exercise, and eating disorders. I know they aren't addictions, but for me, they are similar coping skills. That's fair. Every time I manage to get out of one, I just get addicted to something else. Yeah, we play that Swip Swap game, right? I don't know how to get out of this because my therapist told me to do trauma work I have to get sober first. Oh. Hmm. But I feel like I can't endure being sober before I've dealt with my past because the fear of what will come up is just too strong. How can I get out of this vicious cycle? Thank you so much for all that you do. Of course, and this is a great question and just so everybody knows there are there are a lot of different uh thoughts and beliefs about this, but I've worked at many treatment centers over the years and every one of them required people to be sober first. So like even the eating disorder treatment center I worked at, we had a patient who came and wasn't sober and she had to go get sober first before she could come and work on her eating disorder. And the reason for this is because if we're still numbed out and using an unhealthy coping skill, we're not gonna be able to tap into what we actually need to process. And so my overall advice, and we'll dig into this more, but a quick answer to this is that I wonder if a treatment center would be the best choice for you. Something to consider. If you're at school or at work, you know that you can always take medical leave. It's no one's business what you're actually doing. You can just say you have a health complication that needs to be tended to and your, you know, doctors and therapists and stuff will fill out the appropriate paperwork for you to take that leave. But I really think that that might be the best step for you because it's impossible for you to get sober on your own. And then you can't do the trauma work so that you don't need the drugs and alcohol or the numb out. And we just kind of were caught, like you said, in this vicious cycle. And so let's talk about this a little bit because I want everybody to kind of understand like addiction as a coping skill. And I think a lot of times when it comes to unhealthy coping skills, and I'll just name a couple, just like the person who wrote this question named a few uh, drugs of any kind. I'd even throw, and I know people aren't going to like this, but I'd even throw marijuana into the mix. I'm all for it being legal. I don't think it's wrong to do it every now and again, but if you're using it, again, if you're using it to cope, meaning I don't like myself without the drugs or I don't like the way I feel when I'm sober, that's not good. So any kind of drug that we're using, I, I mean, again, like it even throws Xanax into that as well. You know, these are things that people can overuse as a way to cope. Uh, alcohol, obviously, same reason. Eating disorders, self-injury, shopping, gambling, sex. We can use a lot of things in our life as ways to kind of numb out or distract from how we really feel. And let's be honest, we all have them. Now, they might not all fall into that. Like some people tend to use social media, like this person said, like use social media to numb out. Or, um, you know, some of us might like distract with other people's problems, focusing all of our energy onto our children or other people and making sure they're happy, you know, while ignoring our own. There are a lot of different ways that we can distract and numb out from what we really feel. And that's why when people talk about certain things as like, like, especially eating disorders, and I know that's not what this person's talking about, but especially in the case of eating disorders, people will be like, well, just eat more or just eat less. Like, I don't understand the problem. And to that, I always say, it's not about the fucking food. It's a coping skill. So same with drug or alcohol addiction, right? It's not about the fucking drugs or alcohol. It's about what we're trying to cope from, what we're trying to numb out. And in this case, it's trauma, right? When we encounter things in our life that we don't have the skills or the capability to process or work our way through, we turn to what we know or what we have access to. And that can be good or bad. I've had, you know, friends of mine who've endured terrible traumas in their life and they turned it, they did, they did what is known as sublimation, which is when you take like a shitty thing and your defense mechanism is to turn it into something positive or something that's like, uh, but I don't know what the word I'm looking for, but I guess it's like an action. And so they like really dove into sports. Right. So that would be kind of an example of that, like focusing all your energy on something else. But for a lot of us, you know, we reach out and all we find are, you know, self-injury drugs or alcohol and uh, sex addiction things, because that's all we know, or that's all that we have access to. And it's all an effort to not feel shitty. And I get it, right? No one wants to feel shitty all the time. And the fact that you have to get sober before you can work on your trauma, I don't, it's not that we can't do it on our own, but if you don't feel like you can, there is no shame in going into treatment. Because AA and NA, if anybody doesn't know, Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous are great resources, but between that and therapy, you might find yourself still needing more support. And it's very common. It's okay. That's why there's treatment centers. That's why there's hospitals. That's why there, you know, our day programs, you know, IOPs, PHPs, all those letters we talk about, which are really just different levels of treatment. That's why they all exist is because we're all going to need different levels of support as we work through it. And so the fact that you are swapping, because it's really common for anybody who doesn't know, when we have an unhealthy coping skill, like an addiction, when we don't use that addiction, we pick up another unhealthy coping skill, like, oh, my eating disorder gets worse. I've talked about this in relation to self-injury and eating disorders, where if we struggle with both, they kind of teeter-totter. Oh, I haven't self-injured in a while, but my eating disorder is raging or vice versa, right? We can find ourselves doing that, like swip-swapping unhealthy for other unhealthy ones. And we can come up with healthy coping skills. I firmly believe, you know, the five to one ratio, like we're going to need five healthy ones to negate the one unhealthy. And as a little caveat, just know, no, the healthy ones aren't going to feel as good as the unhealthy one. It doesn't trigger our reward system in the same way, which is why they call it an addiction. But those can help us slow down the impulse to use. But that's again, if we need more support, I don't expect you to do it on your own. You might need to go into treatment and get more support around the clock so that you can get sober. So it might benefit you to look into that. I know that's not the answer you want. Trust me, it's never convenient I, you know, it's always hard to to try to get sober. It's always hard to actually take care of ourselves and treat our mental health. I don't know why we have so much judgment over it, where if it was like our physical health and we were in the hospital because we had to have surgery and there's a complication, they're like, you need to be in here for three weeks. You'd be like, well, shit, I have to be in here for three weeks. But when it comes to our mental health, we're like, no, I don't really need to. We try to minimize and invalidate. I'm here to tell you that if it's impossible, if it feels impossible, if it's, it's too difficult, if it's too scary, to do it on your own. That's why there are resources out there. So look into them in your area, find out which ones your insurance covers or how it can be afforded or how you can get on the list. Let's start that process because I really think that that's the way we're going to get you out of that vicious cycle is essentially more support because we can't do it on our own, right? And that's okay. That's why we have treatment. Now let's move on to question number two. This question says. Hey, Katie, I'm wondering, what is the best thing to do when you are dysregulated, but you're too tired to use healthy coping skills? I find that in order to use them, I have to have a lot of mental energy. That's fair. And sometimes I'm just too worn out to do the quote unquote right thing. Lots of love from Italy. Great question. Obviously, all these questions got a lot of thumbs up, so you're not alone. This is why some of our healthy coping skills need to be what I would call basic needs, I think if you're feeling dysregulated, a thing that you're if you're too tired, maybe you should take a bath. Maybe you should drink some water. Now I know you're thinking Kate doesn't help me cope with shit. That's that's just bull. That's just things that I should be doing anyway. You'd be surprised how much better you can feel after you have a nap, after you take a bath, drink some water, eat some food, take your prescribed medications or whatever you need, maybe you've forgotten to do that. When we do those Basic needs that that what I would call like the halt. You know, I talk about in DBT or dialectical behavior therapy. They always use this acronym Halt, and I just love it because it's like stop. Are you hungry? Are you angry? Are you lonely? Or are you tired? Right, that spells Halt. If you or any of those things, you're going to be incredibly vulnerable to become more dysregulated, and your emotions are going to kind of be running the show versus us being you know able to manage them, which is the healthier way. So halt. What are those things can we do that are very basic, that help us be us? Do those things. Sure, they might not be these intensely emotional or active or like process-based coping skills, but we need a variety of them, right? And these are more of our basic need coping skills, and they will prove to your nervous system and yourself that even these small things are really impactful. So make some time for those basic needs, because, and write them down so you have access. Because sometimes when we're too tired, we can't even remember. We can't even think of what it is that we should do. So write some of those basic halt coping skills down and use those when you're feeling too tired. Because like I said, they're just as important and just as impactful. Okay, let's move on to question number three. And it says, Hey, Katie, I hope you're doing well. I am. I hope you're doing well. How do I teach myself to stop laughing off my traumas in therapy? Oh my God. So so common. I'll talk about that. I have a, a habit of smiling, laughing, and joking about difficult things that I've experienced. And I feel like sometimes I don't even let my therapist know how much I'm really struggling and falling apart inside. I'm very open about how I'm feeling and what I've experienced. So it's not like I'm avoiding the hard topics. I think I just present myself as if these issues don't, if these issues are really easy to talk about and don't bother me as much as they really do. On the inside, it feels like there's a voice inside my head screaming at the top of its lungs, and all I want to do is break down and cry. But for some reason, this shows up as smiling and laughing in therapy. How do I stop doing this and let my therapist know so that she can tell me to cut it out and be serious for once? LOL. Thank you. Okay, and there's a comment on this too, but let's dig into this first part first. First things first, right? Laughing or making jokes about things that are painful is a defense mechanism, it's very common. And I think more people than we realize do it. And even people that you might not even think would do it. I mean, I had a, if you, it's not like I've had patients who are comedians, but my patients who are serious about everything else will still do this in therapy. And I just say that to let you know that it's very common and it's not just a certain ty- type of person or personality. It's just a way that we try to deflect or uh, protect ourselves from Actually, experiencing and acknowledging the pain. Does that make sense? That's why it's a defense mechanism, right? It's protective. Now, the way to actually stop doing this is to just tell your therapist that it's happening. Yes, I know that's easier said than done, but try to find a way to tell your therapist, hey, and this is before you're doing it. I find it's easier to talk about things when we're not in the midst of it. So, this might be something that you're like prepared to talk about when you first walk into your session. You know, a therapist is going to say something like, good to see you. Tell me about your week and, you know, how have things been since I last saw you or how would that homework go, they're, right? They're going to check in. And I think when they ask that check in question, what would be the best for you to say is something to the effect of, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to tell you that I tend to laugh and make jokes about things that are really painful for me. And you just let it sit. It's important for your therapist to know you, you're you doing this, although I have to be honest, I would assume that they have recognized it, but maybe not. You know, it, it's our part as the patient to tell the therapist what we're thinking and experiencing and what we've been through as much as we can remember, right, as best as we can do. It's the therapist's job to listen and then put that through our education to try to offer tools, techniques, and ways for you to better your life, right? That's how therapy works. And so it's really important that we let them know this is happening and then they can offer tools and resources and call you out when you do it. Yes, I know you don't want them doing that, but it's really important that they do because that's how it will stop. We can't do it on our own. It's like a knee-jerk reaction. It's almost like someone tickling you and you not, you know, uh, flinching. It's something that almost like our nervous system is queued up to do. It's the way that we cope. It's the way that we protect ourselves. And the only way around it is to have someone that we trust help us not and help call us out so that we can have a choice of acting in a different way. You know, like for instance, in my experience with my patients who do this, I will just mention, uh, I remember this one uh, person that I saw, she was smiling while she was telling me some like horrific details from her past. And I said, it's interesting that as you tell me something that I, it makes me want to cry. You, you know, you're smiling at me. Do you notice that you're doing that? And she didn't. She was like, oh my God, no, I didn't know I was doing that. I was like, you are. I was like, I'm going to draw your attention to it because I just want you to be aware that that the way that your you know your facial expression doesn't isn't uh in line with what's what we're really talking about you know what i mean it's like I i can't even think of the word but it's like when two things don't go together you know it doesn't work and so i would just draw her attention to it over and over and it slowly went away and also we're doing you know some of that trauma work and stuff like that but i really think the way out is to tell your therapist so they can m- make you realize it when it's happening and challenge you during those times. And if you're worried about what a challenge might look like, like I said it's me saying do you realize you're doing this? That could be one of them. I could also say something to the effect of I know you're laughing this off, but but what's an emotion that you you truly think you're experiencing right now? Are we able to tap in? And I might name some or tell me, you know, tell me where you're feeling that memory or that trauma. Is it in, you know, your throat? Is it in your back? Is it, you know, are you clenched up? You know, I would just ask things like that. And it's just part of the like, relax, not relaxing, because that's not even the right word, but it's almost like the disarming the defense mechanism, right? Because it exists for a reason, it's protective. And so it could be, you know, some of that drawing attention to it, trying to figure out where it comes from. And then the, the other part of it could be finding ways to calm our nervous system down or finding coping skills that help us soothe so that we don't use defense mechanisms, so that there's not that knee-jerk reaction to do them. Does that make sense? I hope so. And then there's also other work that we could do along the same lines where if we keep having other defense mechanisms pop up, like let's say we do black and white thinking all or nothing, right? I find that popping up and then we try to make jokes, right? We go back to that laughing. Then we try to like logic our way out of it. All of those are different ways to deal. And as a therapist, if we're like swip swapping defense mechanisms, I would be really curious about that and what triggered it. And so then we kind of dive deeper into what's triggering these defense mechanisms and how can we not trigger them, right? What are some things that we can do or what are ways we can cope with the trigger? And so telling your therapist will open up a world of options and techniques to help you overcome this urge, okay? Now there was a comment on this and says, oh my God, same. I always smile and joke about my trauma to deflect and ease the tension in the room. Interesting. I always am curious too if expressing what we would deem, you know, quote unquote, bad or uh, uncomfortable emotions in your family of origin wasn't okay. And so our role, instead of being real and experiencing the ups and downs of life, if our role was to make everybody happy, and then we're like the jester of our family, right? We're trying to make jokes and lighten the mood. I'm curious if that was your role. Anyway, this comment, my brain went there. Okay. So I always smile and joke about my trauma to deflect and ease the tension in the room. My therapist never laughs with me. So the tension stays. Hmm. Interesting, right? That stuff fascinates me. And it's really why I love psychology is because what happened there is you went into a role that you've probably held for all of your life and your family. This is the dance that you do. You deflect and you make people laugh, right? You're the jester of your family and your therapist isn't in your family and did not fill that role where they laugh and let it go. And so it didn't serve its purpose. You're, it's like, as why I love the term family dance. Like everybody has their steps that they do. And your therapist just stopped on the dance floor and you ran into them. So like, I'm not going to dance to this. This isn't a healthy dance. Anyway, okay. I'll continue on. It says, I love and hate her for this. <laughs> I'm just too scared of my feelings to give them space and process them. How do I stop being scared of my feelings and the possibility of not being able to cope with them so I can process them in a healthy way? Great question. And again, I think the biggest part of this is telling your therapist that this is happening. I mean, they already are recognizing that you're laughing and they, they're not playing along, right? They're not doing that family dance. But for you, you've already recognized the trigger. So the trigger for your defense mechanism is that my feelings are going to be too much, or it might even be deeper than that. It might be that I'm too much, Right often when we grow up in families where it's not safe or okay to express emotion, we feel like any emotion is too much. We are too much. No one can handle us. We're, we're just too much to take care of, right? And we can kind of tell ourselves that over and over and over and over. And so I might challenge you, I think a way out of this for you could be, and this is my hypothesis. So you could be like, Katie, that's garbage. I don't like, but my hypothesis is that that one way out of this could be to do some inner child work. And I know you just cringe and hit under the table, but I promise you it's really healing inner child work. And I'm running a workshop um, in it's August. I'd have to pull up the dates. It's two Fridays in August. You can look on my Instagram and on my TikTok about it. And in the community tab, I've been sharing it all around. Um, But I'm having a, a workshop on inner child work to help people process it and use it and do it together because I've been talking about it forever. And a lot of people don't know what it means. Because inner child work was essentially created for those of us with past trauma. I remember big T, little t, it's all the same. Past trauma when we were little and we never had an opportunity or the resources to process what happened. And so little us went on believing and thinking in a way that wasn't healthy and it's affecting us now. And in this case, I think little you was probably told that it wasn't okay to take up space or it wasn't okay to feel more than maybe happy. And so we never knew what to do with the emotions that we felt. And we always thought that we were out of control. Hence why you think you're scared of them. Like you're scared of your feelings and you're, you feel like that it's going to be too much because it, even having like any was too much when you were growing up. Like your family was like, no, no, no. And so I think some of the inner child work getting in touch with younger you, maybe writing letters back and forth about situations and, and, um, things that maybe younger you needed to express to older you. That might be one way in. Another way in could also be um, find, paying attention to the way you talk to yourself about this and finding some kind of neutrality, meaning like a bridge statement. So if our thought process is, oh my God, you have so many feelings, they're just going to run you over. It's going to be too much. You're going to shut down or, or you're just always too much. You're too sensitive. You're overreacting, right? We can have all this shit talking. We do like knock it off, you're overreacting. Instead of letting those thoughts come through, pay attention to them, jot down the top, I don't know, three to five that you have repeatedly, and then we're going to bridge statement them. So let's say one of those most common thoughts is, God, Katie, you're always so goddamn sensitive. Let's say that's my negative thought. Instead of trying to say, no, Katie, you have feelings and those are appropriate, because I don't believe that. I'm going to say, you know, it is possible that my sensitivity isn't quite as over the top or too much like I think it is. I'm open to the fact that maybe, maybe it's just my body telling me that something's going on. Maybe, right? Or I'm open to to the to what Katie's saying. And I maybe for a second could believe that it is possible I'm not as sensitive or being sensitive isn't a bad thing, maybe right? It's a lot of maybes possibilities. I'm could, i open to this change. Or for a second, I can think that maybe Katie's right, that this isn't as bad as I think it is maybe, but it also kind of feels shitty, right? These don't have to be positive thoughts or positive statements. And they don't, like I said, they're kind of rambling on, maybe, possibly. we, We can live in that space because that space is way healthier for our brain than that negative space of I'm too much, I'm oversensitive, you know, that kind of those thoughts and those those stories aren't going to take us anywhere we want to go but a more neutral place is moving us towards a place we want to go does that make sense so i think that those are some of the ways you could kind of get in there and slowly but surely allow yourself to take up space and to have a big emotions because we all have them we all are entitled to them Some of us just don't know that we're entitled to them because people lied to us and told us we weren't. And so we have to slowly change that belief. And it takes time. Be patient with yourself, but we'll get there. Okay. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Let's move on to question number four. This question says, hey, Katie, I noticed that it is super hard for me to disagree with my therapist. Interesting. Often when he says stuff that I disagree with, I only notice it after the session. I always feel the need to agree to whatever he says as he's older and more experienced because of his age and his profession. I don't usually have this view. It's just with therapists. How can I start noticing if I disagree in session and speak up? Help. For example, he often says something along the lines of, that might be because your parents treated you in such a a draconic way, so you're afraid to speak up when I told him about this issue. And of course, I've talked about certain things, how my parents used to treat me or do this, um, treat me or do to this day, but I never summarized it in such a way. So I never know what to say when he says things like that. I can't really reflect if it was the case because my mind just goes blank trying to remember instances that would justify such judgment in the moment. So then I just agree with him and feel honored that he thinks it was that bad, as I often struggle with memories of my upbringing and don't trust myself remembering things correctly. I hope this isn't too confusing. Thanks for all that you do. No, not too confusing at all. It's interesting. I have quite a few thoughts. Now, I want you to know that you are the expert of your own life. I know. We might not be making the best choices. We might be struggling, but we know ourselves best. We know what happened to us best. Nothing is more toxic or frustrating to me than when a family member says to another person, I know you better than you know yourself. That's not true. They might just be able to call things out because it's not their own. It's easier to point the finger when it's not pointed at you, right? So you're the expert of your own self, okay? Yes, your therapist has experience. Yes, your therapist has a degree. That doesn't mean they—they're you. They don't know what you don't tell them about yourself, right? So, just keep that in mind. But when it comes to the disagreeing part, I wonder. My hypothesis is that maybe your parents were pretty, pretty rough. Um, maybe emotionally or physically abusive. It might not have been safe to disagree with them. I don't know. There's something about people in, you know, a quote unquote power position that makes it impossible or at least extremely difficult for you to not agree with them all the time. That kind of sounds like a trauma response to me that my mind automatically goes to like fawning. For those of you who don't know, you know, our stress response, like fight, flight, freeze. There's also fawn where we like people please to the max so that the abuse doesn't keep happening. Right. It's like that walking on eggshells that we can do, hoping that if we don't disrupt their life, then they won't hurt us. Right. Um, And so we can do that. And it kind of sounds like that a little bit to me because by going along with it, you're not, you know, you're not saying he's wrong. You're not, um, you're not calling into question anything. And not that, he would get upset. But in your past, those old narratives, right? Things that happened to you before, you've probably been told that by doing that, you'd get hurt or something would happen that wasn't good or it's not okay in general. That's like the belief. But I would, if you're able, I would let your therapist know about this. Say, you know what I've noticed is I I struggle to disagree with you. And I wonder if it comes from my childhood and you know, if anything I said connected for you, you could bring that up, be like, I was thinking about it. And I think it might have to do with the fact that, you know, my dad never let us question him. Or my mom always said that she knew what was best for us. We never got to say anything about that. Like, you could draw a correlation to that and be like, I think it might be tied to that. It's okay to just drop something in a therapist's lap and not have the answers, but have like some hypotheses of our own about it. That's what makes therapy move Uh, that's what makes therapy magical, really, but that's what makes it work. And so share as much as you feel comfortable sharing. It's okay to let them know that you, you struggle to disagree or stand up for yourself, and you see it playing out in therapy too. Now, if he asks for an example, please tell him this example. I have a feeling there's something about the word draconic that is upsetting for you, and that is somewhat like feels... Uh, it feels like an exaggeration because your whole life you've probably minimized and invalidated your trauma experience. And so to have a therapist constantly tell you, yes, that is what ha- what's happened and they're calling it out in a, in a harsh way. You're like, oh, no, 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 no. I don't agree with that. Now I have to push back in the therapeutic sense where I'm like, what your therapist is really doing is validating what happened and telling you, yes, it was terrible. And that can be really healing, but your defense mechanism is to go into that fawn people, please. It's not that bad. I'm okay. I've got to keep them happy, blah, blah, blah. Right. And so that's also kind of probably why this is triggering for you just to throw it out there. Um, But yeah. And I think, I think that's really all I have to say, because you said like, you, you know, you struggle with the memories of your upbringing and don't even trust yourself to remember things correctly. So in a way, him saying that is validating. But the funny thing about trauma and not funny ha ha, the like what I mean by funny is like fucking annoying. The annoying thing about there or about trauma is that when someone does finally give us what we actually need, we've never had it. So it's uncomfortable and we don't even know what to do with it. So like when your therapist validates your experience, you're like, that's also triggering. (laughs) You know, it's like damned if you do, damned if you don't, which is why it's really important to tell your therapist this is coming up for you. And figure out why. Because again, and I know I've talked about this over and over throughout the years, therapy is honestly, it's a very bizarre type of relationship. I understand that. I know it can feel kind of weird at the beginning, but what ends up happening is we play out these behavioral relational patterns in our life with our therapist. And so what's coming up for us in therapy is honestly what's coming up for us in life. And it can be really helpful to dig deep, Hold on, our courage, and tell our therapist what's coming up for us. Because chances are, that has come up for us in a zillion other ways in our life, and we just never were able to notice it because it wasn't done in a, a safe or neutral place like therapy, where we could call attention to what's coming up. We were instead, you know, maybe abused, told to sit down, shut up, or ignored. You know, and this is the one time where we can say, "Hey, this is getting triggered in me. I'm not able to disagree with you. Why?" And figure out. Where that's coming from, you know? I hope that makes sense. I feel like I'm really rambly today, so I apologize. But let's move on to question number five. Question five says Hi, Katie, can you explain the difference between emotional incest and parentification? Great question. Now, overall, when it comes to if anybody's wondering what these terms mean, I'll define them first and then we'll answer the question. So, emotional incest is when a parent relies on a child emotionally, meaning they're going to tell you um, things about themselves and their relationships with others and essentially emotionally oversharing, hence the term emotional incest, right? It's not appropriate for a parent to tell a child about their date and how they thought that guy was cute and, you know, sharing or how they're having a hard time with the divorce or they, they haven't had sex with the spouse, the other child, the child's other parent, or they didn't have good sex or anything like that, right? That's emotional incest. That's oversharing with the child. That's not okay. Now, parentification is when a child doesn't is honestly kind of robbed of their childhood and instead takes on the role of the parent. And it usually happens because the parents either aren't able like let's say they have a physical or mental illness that deems them incapable or they're absent, right? They're neglectful, maybe it's because of work or other reasons. Um and so in whatever way the parent isn't able to meet the needs of the child or the other people in the family. And so usually it's like the oldest child takes on this role. Not always, but a lot of times the oldest child becomes the parent because the parent's not filling that role. And so there is a lot of overlap, as I'm sure you can see, even when I just define those two terms. But the main difference is that the emotional incest is about sharing experiences and like emotional stuff. And the parentification is more about the role of the child being the parent. Now, again, there's overlap, but that's the main differentiation. And I think if, I think if you were, if there was emotional incest, chances are you were also parentified, you know? So that's why I'm saying like, they probably happen together. They're like things that happen to go together a lot. Just like I would say, you know, like probably eating disorders and self-injury going as coping skills happening a lot or depression and anxiety, right? There's a lot of things when it comes to our mental health that can tend to run together. And I think these two are those things as well. Um, but I don't always find that parentification means there's emotional incest sometimes, but not always, right? Doesn't always go both ways. But I hope that, that kind of clears it up. Um, yeah. Emotional incest is about them sharing things with you that aren't appropriate, like emotional things. Parentification is when you take on the role of being the parent. Okay. Let's move on to question number six. And it says, hey, Katie, I was wondering if you could talk about the reasons why emotions are important. Great question. I started therapy last year and my therapist talked about distress tolerance and we were working on building up coping skills. But one thing we did was try and realize why the emotions we have are necessary. But I could never out, never quite figure out why my negative emotions are really necessary. We're going to dig into this. This is a great question. I have the most trouble with anger. Join the club. I don't understand why things make me angry. And getting angry usually makes others upset or angry as well. So I don't really understand why I can't just not get angry. I don't mean to laugh. I it's just like I'm reading a letter from myself like 10 years ago. I hope this sort of makes sense. Thank you for the podcast. It's a big help. Of course, of course. Okay. So first let's just start out why emotions are important. Now Emotions are important because they tell us about our experience and what's going on. They're indicators, okay? They're important indicators. Essentially, in the road of life, our emotions are like mileposts, so we know where we're at. If we're really happy or we're really excited, that tells us something good is going on or something good is coming up, right? It's good to know. Those are indicators of how we're doing internally, if we're angry that tells us that we've probably been hurt or felt victimized or un- misunderstood or you know something has happened cuz anger if you didn't know is a secondary emotion meaning it's like protective it happens as a result of another emotion okay so if we're feeling really anxious or we're feeling really um i don't know sad Those are also indicators, again, these mileposts telling us like what's happening, where we're at, what's going on inside. That's why they're important. Because if we can pay attention to our emotions, then they won't build up over time and lead to bigger things. For instance, if I am feeling really misunderstood and minimized, let's say at work, and i never acknowledge it and never try to process it it just is happening over and over and over and over that can lead up to some intense resentment and possibly aggression at work and i could lose my job right now that's just like one real world example i could give you another like let's say um i never paid attention to my emotions and i stuffed down like especially good emotions like when i feel joy or excitement i tell myself it's i don't deserve to feel those i try to ignore them and stuff them down and as weird as this sounds when we don't allow ourselves any joy or happiness what do we allow ourselves only bad things so then that could grow into anxiety worrying of when things are going to turn shitty or depression thinking i don't deserve anything good i should just go into a dark hole you know and only focus on the negative things so either way if we don't acknowledge and allow our emotions we're not only ignoring internal indicators of what's going on, but we could potentially harm our relationships and um, path and life as things move forward, right? Because, and I'll give another example, because let's say we're in a relationship with someone, let's say it's a romantic relationship, and we feel uneasy around them and kind of like on edge and really nervous and we don't pay attention to it. And then we end up going on a trip with them and they physically abuse us or something or they leave us there. I mean, I know these, I'm just giving, obviously like some are extreme or some are random, but it's those indicators, those things that we experience, the feelings that came up, they tell us something about what's going on and we need to pay attention to them because they truly are, are inside speaking to us. You know what I mean? It's like our subconscious is like sounding the alarm and giving us uh, helpful and protective indicators for our life. Okay, so that's why they're necessary. I hope that makes sense. If you want to follow up, and maybe I should answer this in a full video. I don't know. Let me know in the comments if you think I should. Okay, now anger I had the most trouble with anger growing up as well. It felt very out of control. It felt very scary and it felt very dangerous for myself and other people because I didn't want to upset anybody else. I was a total people pleaser and it's still something that I struggle with. So having the most trouble with anger is incredibly common. Anger has been always deemed as like a bad emotion, but it's incredibly important too because it tells us again of something going on. If you consider anger being a secondary emotion, meaning it shows up, I call it like the puffer fishing, right? puffer fish without their spines are super, super vulnerable, right? They're a little soft, squishy. Burp, burp, burp. They're a little, you know, they can get really hurt. And so what happens is we're all little puffer fish with our spines in. And if someone pokes us, it hurts us. Oh, we shoot our spines out. Anger comes to our rescue. I feel hurt and vulnerable. Anger is going to protect me. We shoot our spines out. That's why I have some shirts with puffer fish on it. Cause it's just, we puffer fish. That's what my therapist told me I was doing through life. She's like, you're puffer fishing your way through life. And I was like, well, I feel safer. And then I, you know, but um, that's what anger is, is those spines. Okay. And it's protective, but it's not really helpful in the long run. Doesn't mean it's not helpful in the short term. Anger protects us. That's good. It also tells us because we often don't want to acknowledge that we feel hurt or misunderstood or, painful feelings right we don't want to admit those it can be hard for us to acknowledge we can think it's not okay we don't have a right to feel that way we shouldn't um we can do the like minimization like other people have it worse i don't know why i'm being this way or i'm too sensitive i'm overreacting right we can do all of that stuff and anger tells us it's a it's a stronger indicator that something has happened and that we've been hurt and that's why it's really helpful and using anger to your benefit I think is something incredibly powerful. And what I mean by that is instead of letting anger uh, feel like it needs to be snuffed out and shoved down, what if we let it move through us? What if we express it? in what I would call like healthier ways, meaning like communicating directly. It's okay to be angry with someone and tell them so. It's okay to say to a spouse or a friend, you know, that really hurt my feelings and I'm angry with you. I can't believe you'd talk to me that way. Or, you know, it's okay to be assertive, to communicate, to express when you're upset and when something is frustrating. And here's the kicker as a former people pleaser, the hardest part for me is to not then apologize for saying that. (laughs) So I'm just throwing that out there. But it's OK to harness that anger and be like, that means that I, you know, I must have felt X, Y or Z. This is coming up for me because I'm, I'm feeling a little bit more vulnerable um, because they said this and that, you know, was something it's triggering. You know, it, it's it's helpful because it allows us then to learn about it and having that emotion and um, giving space to it, meaning not trying to shove it down or shut it up means that it won't feel like what i was scared of that it's out of control and ruining things because instead of all of a sudden like all or nothing again right doing black and white don't express anything express everything from the last 10 years instead of going between these extremes it's almost like a pot that never boils over because you just keep letting or i guess it'd be like a teapot that never whistles you keep letting the steam out and that's what we should be doing want to let the steam out before it completely sounds the alarm and is really loud and in your whole house you know what i mean I hope that makes sense. Now let me keep reading because it says, you know, why? Um, oh, anger make makes others upset or um, or angry as well. So I don't understand why I can, can't just not get angry. Again, anger is helpful and it's protective and it's important because otherwise we might not recognize when people have overstepped boundaries, done things that aren't okay, and also won't let us know when we have been hurt or felt misunderstood. And those are all good things to communicate and help us express. And sometimes without anger, it would go un, undealt with or unidentified. And now a person asked on as a comment below this said also, why is it important to be in the present moment when you're experiencing physical pain? It's important to be present, I'm assuming they're referencing like emotions, like why is it important to be present with these emotions if it's actually causing you pain? I wouldn't say physical pain like if you actually like hurt like let's say you broke your leg, I don't think there's any reason for you to necessarily be present, like if a doctor wants to put you out to take care of it, I think that's fine, so if that's what you're saying, I don't necessarily agree with that, but when it comes to emotions and and the fact that emotions can feel physically painful and you're wondering like why in the world do I have to actually be with it and sit with it. It's because if we don't, so I read this beautiful meme that I want to share with you guys. Cause it's just, I know it's just a meme, but it was like a tweet that another therapist put out. And if I knew their name off the top of my head, I would totally give them credit because this is not mine, but they said something to the effect of if you don't acknowledge your pain or make time for it, it will come out on its own and it will probably come out at a really inconvenient time. Now, this can be applied to like taking a break or burnout, anything. If you don't give yourself a break, your brain and body are going to create a break for you. They're going to make that break happen. And it probably won't be when you want them to. Okay. That's why we need to be able to experience the upsets, acknowledge them, figure out where they came from. See if there are different steps we can take so that we don't go through it again. There can be key learnings. There doesn't always have to be some, but sometimes the key learnings aren't about actions we took. It's about ways we treated ourselves or things that we said or didn't say things that we wanted to acknowledge or didn't acknowledge, right? It's they're helping us learn about ourselves and our experience and our environment and how we can do it better next time. And painful ones are really important because I think we could all agree if we just, Take a minute together. I think we can think back on our life and think of a really shit time. I can think of a really shit time, many shit times. And those are the times that I actually learned the most about myself and grew the most. And without those shitty experiences, unfortunately, I might not have been or become who I am. And I might still feel stuck in some ways. And it's almost like with, um, and not to go on too much of a ramble, but it's almost like when we have children, a lot of parenting books and a lot of research proves that it's important for children to do what parents might deem as dangerous. Like, let's say we have a toddler and they really want to climb up the steps, but they're not great at it, right? Sure, we can pad the steps so that we don't want anybody getting hurt, but it is okay for a child to get hurt trying something new and learning from that. There's something really important in our development for us to like make mistakes Like letting a child, not letting, but like letting a child cook a little bit with you. And sure, they might accidentally touch a hot stove. Really? Ah, it's hot. But they'll learn not to touch it again. Now, I know helicopter parents want to say, but I just want to tell them, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do that. That's too scary. Don't do that. Don't touch that. We can't pad someone's life like that. They need to learn. Just hearing the word, don't do that, or that's not safe, is not the same as trying it ourselves and maybe failing, right? Like, it's okay for our children to fall in love with the person that we're like, I don't think that's a good fit for them. I know we want to, you know, bumper bowl them, put little protectors in so they go right down and they don't have any issues, but that's not life. It's actually really helpful developmentally for children to try things that are a little risky, to learn about risk, to learn about danger. Obviously, we're there to pick them up and clean them off and keep them safe like for bigger things but for a kid to touch a hot pan i mean i had burns as a little kid from hitting things and doing stuff like that scars on my knees from falling it's it's part of our development and again i'm not talking like extreme risky behavior i'm just talking about children learning about life and stumbling and trying and failing and having relationships not work out having friendships where they realize like hey i guess that person was a little you know too much for me or maybe a little more of a bookworm than I am. Like it's all helpful when it comes to us developing and growing and becoming who we need to be. And if we don't have those experiences, we can feel like we're perpetually unsure. I honestly, I think it causes like a lot of anxiety in children because then they don't feel safe to do anything. And it can cause, you know, a codependence between the the child and the parent where they need to check in with them to make decisions and everything. And what we want with our children, we want them to be independent and Again, I know I'm going on a tangent, but there is something important about us having that those bad "quote unquote" bad uh, emotions. There are no bad emotions, by the way, but the ones that we've deemed to be bad, like anger, uh, upset, hurt, uh, invalidation, minimization—you know, whatever you want to call it, whatever words sound best to you for how you feel it. It's important for us to have those because that helps us learn boundaries. That helps us learn our limits. That helps us understand uh, triggers, what's okay or not okay for us. It's it's all important. It's all indicators of what's happening to us. Does that make sense? I know it's kind of like woo-woo. Like we're thinking, you know, we're talking about something you can't see, but I hope that that helps clear that up. And yes, I know it's uncomfortable. Don't pretend just because I I say and know this that I always do it. I just know better. It doesn't mean I'll do better. Okay. I'm in it with you. Let's move on to question number seven. This question says, Hey Katie, I hope you're well. I am. I hope you're well. I'm just wondering how you figure out what next step in your life is right for you. Ooh. Yeah. Good question. I find it difficult to decide where I want to go, what I should be doing, what is right for me alongside the guilt of what if I make the wrong decision? For context, if it's relevant, I'm currently in a position where I have just finished studying and I feel like I've just wasted my time and gone down the wrong path. As well as this, I think about the anxiety that comes along with trying something new and making a decision. All of this combined just leads to overwhelm and I feel like I just can't move forward. Any advice? Thank you, Katie. Man, the anxiety you're feeling is like palpable just through the way you wrote it. And part of me wonders if anxiety is the main problem here. Just a hypothesis, throwing it out there. It could be beneficial for you to talk to a therapist, you know, maybe a psychiatrist. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT is really helpful for anxiety. That might be uh, helpful in this case. Now, I'm going to give you maybe advice that you don't really like, but it's, it's the honest truth. We all make wrong decisions. We just don't know they're wrong at the moment. And I feel like, like I was just saying for the last question, it's sometimes helpful, even though it fucking sucks to like make mistakes and fuck up and have relationships end, right? It can be traumatizing. It can be overwhelming. It can be depressing. It can be derailing, but it's all part of our story. And I think, unfortunately, I know this sounds bad, but it's like, I'm not saying bad things should happen to everybody, but I'm just saying that when we're trying to navigate life as a, a new person out in the world, we don't always know what we want, and it's okay to just guess, right? When I went to school, so here, here's a true story. When I went to school, I thought first, I wanted to be a school counselor, that's what I wanted to do. Then I learned about uh, working with kids. I did it for a little bit and I hated it. No offense to kids, but it's just not my jam. Um, hated it. So then I was like, oh my God, I don't even know if I want to do that. Maybe instead of going to grad school to become a therapist, I'm going to go to culinary school. Yeah. Your girl applied to culinary school. I got in. Um, I didn't go because my mom, uh, God bless her, was like, just consider what that job would look like. You know, what would that mean for you? Um, she's like, cause I, you're not a person who likes to work really late. She was correct. I did not like, even at the restaurant I worked at, I purposely picked a breakfast and lunch restaurant because I do not like working until midnight. Then you don't have any time to hang out with your friends. It sucked. Now she said, do you want to work all evenings? You know, um, I want to be a pastry chef more specifically. And she was like, and you're not a morning person. Do you like want to get up at like 4am to like start making bread for, you know? And that's the honest truth. And she's like, just think about the job and like what that would mean for you. And how would that work? And I thought about it and was like, this sounds terrible. Mom, you are correct. I don't want to waste like 50 grand going to culinary school. So I didn't do it. And then I took a position as a counselor because I didn't have, have my master's yet to see if I really like being a therapist, And I worked with adults and turns out I did. I just didn't like working with kids. And so I tell you that story because there's a lot of weird plays. I also was a sales rep for a while. I worked as a coffee, a barista. I worked as a waitress. Like, and not that I thought those were going to be my career paths, but they could have been right. We kind of find our way through life and nobody makes the right decision all the time. And so the way that I figure out what the best next steps are for me in my life is to talk to people I trust about it. That could be a therapist. That could be a parent. That could be a spouse or a partner. That could be a best friend. Anybody it could be part of our community, just talking to people because people who really know you and love you are going to ask real questions like my mom, because um, she's always been super supportive. Whatever I want to do, she supports me, but she's wanted me to think about it. Because it also was like, I was, I think I was getting scared about making a big decision and spending more money on school because I'd already paid for four years and that was fucking expensive. So I think I was like, oh my God, how can I spend more? You know, I was getting kind of, and then what if I don't like it, you know, and there's all that panic, right? But just consider, you know, and talking it out with a therapist or, you know, a close person in your life can give you some insight and help you think it through. And a great thing when it comes to like career path or education path is mentorship. Finding someone who's older than you or has, even if they're not older than you, has just been in the job longer or has a job that you think you might like, ask them about it. See if they'll let you shadow them for a day. I've done that with some of my friends and my colleagues. It's incredibly helpful. Um, So that can also be a way to kind of help make decisions. Because, again. There's no fail safe way to ensure that we don't make the wrong decision. And I don't even like to call them wrong decisions. I like to call them like learning experiences. And I know you hate that, but that's such a therapist thing, but it's reframing it, right? Because my wrong decisions, there's that, I know, I love country music. There's that Rascal Flat song, The Broken Road, you know, led me straight to you. That's life. We we make all sorts of bad decisions, but it all leads us to where we're going to be and where we're supposed to be. And I feel like there's some part of us that just has to believe in the process, You know, it's like when you watch Bob Ross make a painting at first, you're like, what the fuck is this? And then you're like, oh my God, that's a mountain. Amazing. You have to trust the process. That's life. We're going to mess up. Remember he said beautiful mistakes. He turned them into like trees or something. That's life. Things are going to happen. We're going to make the wrong decision, but what can we learn from it? How can we go forward? How can we turn it into a beautiful mistake? Um, I know that's a shitty answer. Let me give you one more thought. Okay. Take your time making next steps. If you're really concerned, talk it out. Pros and cons always help. Not because they give us the answer, but by doing it, I personally find that by even writing out pros and cons, I already know what I want to do. Right? Even if one list is longer, like if the con list is like 10 and there's only two pros, but those two pros are like, you know, what I think is fucking life changing, then I'm going to go for it. Even though there's a ton of cons, but just doing that action can sometimes help me make that decision. So, Allow yourself to free think, to talk it out. Sometimes I find just doodling about it, like you know, the pros and cons and just thoughts that come up about things. It'll help lead you to the right choice. For now, does that mean that we can't mess up and we can't change our minds? No. I think that's the problem why people sometimes wake up at like 40 or 50 and are like, what am I doing with my life? It's because they never questioned. They never allowed themselves to be like, maybe I don't want to do this. What if I want to rethink my career at 38. You know, there's nothing wrong with any of that. I know we think that all these decisions are huge and big and we can never go back and we can't change, but I'm here to tell you that there's nothing wrong with changing your mind. There's nothing wrong with getting started on a career later. There's nothing wrong with, you know, taking one step forward and then being like, oh, and then go in a whole nother direction. We can always pivot. So the best thing I think is to talk it out with someone that you trust and be okay answering those tough questions. Um, And then also, like I said, I think anxiety is playing a big role here too. Now, there was a comment on this and I said, I feel the same anxiety about the next steps and I get overwhelmed so quickly and the suicidal feelings rush in. I struggle to see myself in the future and feel that I will just be unhappy forever. So perhaps this is why I panic. Is there a way to step forward without it ruining us? Now for this person, I definitely think mental health treatment is the best step for you the overwhelmed feeling and the suicidal thoughts rushing in to me is a major depressive disorder potentially panic disorder if we have panic attacks and some anxiety there too because the anxiety gets you overwhelmed pushes into you know there's something going on there we need to get you properly diagnosed and treated because i feel like if we can understand where our anxiety and depression is coming from and we can work some tools like uh, things you know different different cognitive behavioral tools or behavioral activation, they call it, which is just like encouraging you to engage in things you used to like in little bits so that you can get the reward of it. Even though I know depression makes us it really difficult for us to be motivated. That's why it's just little bits at a time. There are some tools and techniques we can utilize to help manage that depression and anxiety so that we can move forward. Because even the fact that you said you struggle to see yourself in the future, to me, I'm like, that sounds like depression, like snuffing out our motivation, snuffing out our hope for the future. So I, want, I wonder if that's where that's coming from. My brain automatically goes to, it's not about the decisions. It's about our mental illness getting in the way of us being able to effectively make decisions. So I would reach out, try to find a therapist in your area um, that treats anxiety, depression, which spoilers, most people do, Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy could be really beneficial. So if you want to ask if they utilize that, uh, that could be really great. But I think that that's really the best way forward for you. Okay. Final question. Question number eight. Today's went by really quick to me for some reason. It says, hi, Katie, do you think physical punishment can be traumatic? Yes, I do. I'm wondering because it seems to affect me in my fear of men, hypervigilance, and always walking on eggshells. The quote unquote punishment wasn't always related to what we had done, but rather his stress or anger levels. He'd get out of control, scream, threaten, spank, and sometimes kick us kids and afterwards laugh at us while we were crying or laugh at us for crying. Yeah, this is trauma. That's abuse. It didn't leave marks or injure us, but at times I did fear for my sibling's life due to him seeming so out of control. Could this be traumatic and still affect me now as an adult? 100%. Uh, Physical punishment is definitely traumatic. There's a ton of research to support that spanking children is not effective. And I know there's a lot of parents out there that just believe in it and that's what they're going to do. I'm just here to tell you that it's not proven effective. Actually, the best way to teach children is to, to take away things. And I know that sounds crazy, but timeouts are extremely effective and them not having access to a toy that they want or something else that they want. That's actually the best way to punish a child. We know that through basic uh, psychological learning. If you want to Google psychological learning techniques, or you could look up the Skinner box, you could look up, um, what are the other ones? That's just the first one that comes to mind for like operant conditioning, classical conditioning. When we talk about learning, if we want our kids to be better behaved, taking things away is actually better than adding things. We f- we find that to be more effective because it doesn't uh, trigger a stress response because we don't want to stress kids out. And also just, just spoilers for parents out there and also for children who are thinking that they're overreacting. When we feel stressed and overwhelmed, our limbic system goes into like Sound the alarm. Our amygdala fires, shuts off, not to get too nerdy, but hang with me. Limbic system ignited. Amygdala sounds the alarm. Prefrontal cortex goes offline, meaning we're not able to make good decisions. We're not able to learn new things very quickly. It's really hard for us to focus, and we can't be focused on any future, anything, because our prefrontal cortex is offline. Hard for us to put words together in a sentence that makes sense. So... If a parent is pushing us into our stress response, we're not going to be able to learn to be better. We're not going to be able to communicate to them about what we feel. And it's just, it's not effective. Our brain doesn't work that way. The best way to teach a child is to communicate to them to remove something and to have a punishment of a timeout or not getting to do a thing they want to do. That's the easiest and best way. Now, I'm not a parent. and I'm not pretending that I know what it's like to be stressed. And I'm not saying every parent has to be perfect. and can never, you know, yell at their child or lose their temper. We're not perfect. I know that. But I'm just telling you, if anybody out there thinks that spanking is effective, I'm here to tell you it is not. Okay. And yes, for the person who asked this question, physical punishment is almost always traumatic parents are so much larger have so much more control over our lives when we're children that if we think they'll hurt us that's trauma boom right there and watching our uh, siblings get abused trauma so yes of course of course this could still affect you as an adult that is horrific and terrifying and i know we try to minimize i know people have it worse There's plenty. Unfortunately, there's plenty of pain to go around and you have every right to yours. And I'd encourage you to seek out therapy, find a trauma specialist. I also have my book Traumatize that came out last September. That could be a good place to start. I try my best to make everything really easy to follow with tools and techniques and, you know, some key learnings in there so that it's not too overwhelming. But yes that is traumatic. Now there was a comment on this says, do you think physical punishment causes anger problems? Uh, yeah, because you feel hurt and vulnerable and out of control. I have anger issues. Um, I have had anger issues before getting better at controlling it. And I saw my dad push my mom before as well. Yes, of course. Um, abuse can cause a lot of different things. Our trauma response can cause us to be hypervigilant irritable and on edge. And especially with anger, if we think about anger being secondary, right? If we feel hurt or vulnerable to things, we feel uh, like we could be harmed, right? Like we could be traumatized. If we feel that wound, we're going to stick our spines out all the time. So a lot of my patients who have trauma in their past will find themselves like quick to anger. And that's because obviously our nervous system is like, well, we can't tolerate any more of this abuse. I don't think I could manage it. I'm going to stick my spines out right away and protect myself from any future pain, right? It makes sense. I get it. And the only way to calm this down and to manage those anger issues is truly through that trauma processing and listening, doing that inner child work, like I talked about before, where you like listen to a younger you and you get back in touch with them to validate them so that we kind of without like there's got there's better ways to say it, but for lack of a better term, we take the edge off so that the anger isn't so prolific. We can actually pull our spines in and feel okay knowing that we get to choose who's in our life and who we put ourselves around and what situations we will endure. And so we can pull those spines in and at least feel okay. Of course, when we don't feel safe, we're going to have those spines out. And the, those spines are our anger issues. And we're going to rage on everybody essentially to keep ourselves safe. It's it's again, that's why I like the pufferfish analogy. And so, yes, physical punishment can cause anger problems. And watching a, a parent hurt another parent is trauma. And so I'd encourage both of the people who ask these questions, the comment and the original question, please reach out and find a trauma specialist in your area. There are tons of different trauma treatments. It's not just talk therapy. There's EMDR, there's schema therapy, somatic experiencing. There's even something called the vagus nerve stimulation and uh stellate ganglion block. I write about all those in my book, Traumatized, as well, about all the different treatment options. So know if one doesn't work for you, don't give up hope. There is a treatment out there that will help you heal and feel better. Okay, thank you all so much for listening and watching. Thank you for sending in your questions. As always, they were great. Um, and let me know if you want me to do a full video on the importance of emotions, because I feel like that's one you could really dive into. I could dive into a lot of these as, as always. Uh, thank you all so much. Have a wonderful rest of your week and I'll see you next time. Bye.